You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. So maybe we're asking this question, why the Sermon on the Mount right now? Uh, a few important reasons. Number one, we believe the Holy Spirit has led us to be here as elders again at this time. I believe it's an awesome call for us in our 20th year as a church to take the greatest sermon ever given by Jesus and to be able to unpack it in our lives and see what he does. So we believe God's Spirit has led us to this point. Number two, uh, why the Sermon on the Mount? Because the, ch- the condition of the church desperately needs it. Big C Church, of course, we need it as well. The pull of society uh, all around us right now um, is increasingly pulling people towards rampant selfishness, uh, awful ungodliness, tremendous foolishness, uh, really just worldliness, all under the domain of darkness. You, uh, if you know your Bibles, you know that Satan has been temporarily granted kind of the, the uh, domain of this world called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2, and he's wreaking havoc as much as ever in this nation. So what Jesus does in the Sermon of the Mount is he throws a spiritual hand grenade into the midst of the darkness, and there's this massive explosion of light that erupts since so many lives are changed. If you've been at Hope Oakville any period of time, you know we love uh, spiritual hand grenades. And so we love to pull the pen and to toss it into the darkness and to watch this massive explosion for Jesus Christ and his glory and to see lives turned upside down and change for the kingdom of God. And we're praying that the Sermon on the Mount will be spiritual hand grenades of light that result in such glory and life transformation all over the place. The third reason we're doing the Sermon on the Mount is because, this is, this is key, the Sermon on the Mount exposes pretenders. It exposes pretenders. That's a big thing of what Jesus is doing. He's calling it out, and, and, and hearts get exposed pretty quick. And here's the reality. In this place right now today, hundreds of people gathering in this service alone, overflowing people listening. The reality is there are pretenders here right now. What do you mean by that? There are people playing church. There are people that have, even in our day of a secular world, there's people coming here for the wrong reasons. There are people coming here out of ritual, out of external behavior, maybe legalistic tendencies, and they're not really in Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is to expose the pretenders, to bring salvation, to invite them to everlasting life. Like you have a whole bunch of people listening to Jesus during the Sermon on the Mount that have law but have no life. So it exposes pretenders. And again, like, I've been reading through this a lot, and I'm like, oh, man, that passage is going to be tough. You know what I mean? Like, the words Jesus says, that's going to hurt a lot. It's going to be good, right? So it exposes pretenders, but it renews believers. It brings renewal to those who are genuinely in the kingdom, and it brings conviction, but then incentive to how much that God wants to grow us and change us in the midst of what he has for us as citizens, again, of his kingdom. So by way of context, again, as we go through this, the Sermon on the Mount, you need to know this, is written for believers, those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said this, I love this quote, this is really important. He says, we are not told in the Sermon on the Mount, this is so key, we are not told, live like this and you'll become a Christian. A lot of people try to do that, it doesn't work. We are not told, live like this, you become a Christian. Here's what's so key, rather we are told, because you are Christians, 
Because you are born again, because you are generally saved, because you are in the kingdom, then live like this. Those two statements are vastly different. Just take a look at those for a second to make sure you get it. Rather, Lloyd-Jones says, this is how Christians ought to live. This is how genuine Christians in Christ are meant to live. You don't do certain things and I'm saved. No, because you are saved, we are compelled, and the Holy Spirit will agree with this emphatically as we go along, that this is, again, how we are to, to live. And I want to say from the outset as we go through this, because it's so tempting to get off track a little bit, from the outset, obedience to the Sermon on the Mount is impossible without being born again. You must be alive in Jesus Christ by the Spirit to have any hope of seeing these commands obeyed from our lives. You can't be outside the kingdom or, or dead or not born again in order this to happen. And for those of us who are born again, obedience absolutely necessitates the power of God's Spirit for these commands to be filled. I mean, even starting today, blessed are the poor in spirit. Good luck apart from the Holy Spirit. Like, it's not going to happen. So we are in desperate need. Number one, you have to be born again if anything's going to happen here in your life of any reality. And then secondly, for those of us saved, we desperately need the power of God's Spirit to work on our lives as we go throughout this and that's just a basic understanding, again, as we come to this greatest sermon ever given. So needless to say, there's a lot in front of us, and we're expecting a great work from the Lord uh, this year. And I think what's really, really important right now, too, is that we just take some time to pray. All right, so we do this from time to time, and uh, we're going to turn this room into a little mini prayer meeting. Don't be nervous, don't be nervous, don't be nervous. It's okay. Everything's good, okay? I'm inviting you to pray in groups two, three, or four, whatever, and pray out loud. I'm inviting you, I'm encouraging you to pray out loud. However, if you feel more comfortable to pray by yourself where you are, no problem. That's beautiful. But let's just take a moment and let's just have this one prayer request here today as a church because we are a praying church. Um, Lord Jesus, would you change our lives this year through the Sermon on the Mount? Lord Jesus, in your name, would you change our lives this year through the Sermon on the Mount? Here, here's what I know, okay? And just even stepping back in today and just like, do you know how much the darkness of the world hates this place? Like, like this here, like this building here and the people who gather here and every car that pulls in, this is a serious threat. In our world, there's so little of this happening, and that's sad. He hates this. Satan hates you, and he hates the word, and he hates, and, and so we're in a spiritual battle, and we've got to pray like it gotta pray like it the reality of what we're facing but then the expectancy of what god wants to do in our midst so that's why we take a couple of two or three minutes not long i implore you pray out loud again and pray by yourself it's fine but let's pray for a couple minutes I'll, I'll come up and i will close this okay so mini prayer meeting overflow encourage you at home where you're watching let's pray a couple minutes okay and then i'll come up and i'll close this off let's do that change our lives lord
So, Father, we gladly bow before you and we declare our theology, I pray, is right. We need you. Our dependence is real. Help us. Would you take this year, Lord, we pray for more life change than we've ever seen as a church. We pray for more salvation than we've ever seen, Lord, as a church. We pray for more sanctification in the lives of men, women, and children upon this place by the grace and for your glory. Please, God, would you do it? Father, we need you. Amen, church? Amen? Like we just say out loud, we need you so, so much. And Jesus Christ, we love you. Amen, church? We love Jesus Christ. We love you, and this is for you. And so help us, again, see in our hearts a posture of humility, dependence, and even as we're going to hear today being poor in spirit before you we pray this together and now we are watchful with thanksgiving in jesus name if you agree you can say amen amen that is awesome so glad and so good to do that all right let's get our bibles open to matthew 5 then let us begin this wonderful sermon on the mount by jesus here we're going to look at verses 1 to 3 together today i I was going to do verses 1 to 4 but uh it became there's too much to say so we're not going to do that we'll pick that up next week lord willing But verses 1 to 3, I'll read it for us, and then we'll jump in. I'll read a a few more verses just to get context, but we're going to unpack and exegete the first three. Verse 1, chapter 5, Gospel of Matthew. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'll just stop there. So we had an introduction for this series. Now I just want to briefly introduce our first section. It's called uh, the Beatitudes. Now I love, love, love the Beatitudes. They are absolutely life-changing. They are the foundation for everything else we desire to be in Christ. They are so important. And that's why Jesus begins with them. So notice in verse 1 it says, And Jesus went up on the mountain... And he began to teach. So this is why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, now, I don't take for granted that all of you have really truly understood. Sometimes the most obvious things miss us, right? So, like, oh, that's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, yes, very simple, but right there in front of us. Then notice verse 2, though, I love this. It says, and he opened his mouth and taught them. What an interesting phrase, isn't that? Like, when would you describe a speaker coming in to speak at a church or whatever? And the speaker came in, and you say, and he opened his mouth and preached. I don't think I would ever say that. I've ever said that. But it says it right here. And why does the Bible say Because there's so much intention with what's going on. Jesus came. Now, remember, this is the Son of God. This is God himself, God eternal. This is the bright and morning star. This is the one who holds the key to death in Hades. This is the great I am. This is the one who has come as the savior and salvation of the world. And he has pre-planned this moment before the foundation of the world. Like he knows precisely what he's going to say. Every single word to be recorded in scripture forever. 2,000 years later, we're still teaching and lives are being changed by it. So he opened his mouth and the world's about to change forever. Not one word of his will fall to the ground. There's massive intention of what is happening right here. When he opened his mouth and the world would never be the same again. I try to imagine, like, so imagine you knew what was happening that day as Jesus went to the mountain, sat down, and started teaching, preaching. 
and you knew like what was happening. Like God was here, and he was about to preach, and someone came up to you and said, hey, what's all the commotion, man? Who's preaching? And you'd be like, God's preaching. I think it's going to be good. Yeah, yeah, because that's what happened when God speaks. I mean, he knows what he's saying, and he knows what he's doing. And this is what's taking place in Matthew, again, chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, is going to be preaching. And again, the world will never be the same again. And notice how he begins this world-changing sermon with what are called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes is taken from the Latin word beatus which means blessed. And we, in English, we say beatitudes because nine times in the next 10 verses, Jesus will use the phrase, blessed are the, right? So this is so significant. And I want us to pay attention right now and take this in. The word blessed here can be translated legitimately, happy, uh, fulfilled, blissful. What's behind this? Blessed are inner contentedness. Those who are blessed by the Lord truly have a fulfillment, have a joy, have a happiness, have a inner contentedness that is not altered by situations around them. Let me ask you, do you, do you have that? Like, 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 would you describe yourself as walking around in your life right now with an inner contentedness that is unalterable based on the world that is around you? I say we want to have that. I say we can have that, which is a big part of today. But often we don't have that because we're so distracted by the things that could never satisfy or truly fulfill us. Jesus wants to love us by giving us this blessing. And, and now, sometimes we're afraid to say things like this, right? Because it sounds like a little bit like prosperous, whatever it is. But like, let's, without a doubt, here's what Jesus is saying through the Beatitudes. He is saying, I am about to unpack the secret to the truly blessed and happy life. Without a doubt, Jesus is saying that. He is saying, what follows right here, blessed are, this is the pathway to the secret of true fulfillment, joy, and happiness. But here's the key, not on the world's terms or my terms or your terms, but on his terms. That's the difference. Because where we quickly err in life is when we start to define happiness by the world's definition around us. The Beatitudes are worlds apart from any worldly definition of happiness. And and we know that happiness, we need to know, be reminded a lot, happiness by the world's terms is supremely superficial, it's supremely shallow, it's temporal, it's pathetic. So like, you know, for example, I got to play a few rounds of golf this summer just so I could work on my humiliation. And so when I'm playing golf, it's interesting, like you hit a good shot and you feel happy. Like you genuinely feel an emotion of happiness. Like, oh yeah, that's really good. And then your next shot and it goes in the woods and you feel miserable. And then you're just like, wow, you're like up and down. You hear your next shot, it's maybe good, and you all feel happy again. And then you hear your next shot, it's in the water. And you generally, you're, like, you're fighting feelings of misery, you know? It's pathetic. And so, like, what about when you cheer for, your, cheer for your sports team? They win, you're happy. They lose, and then you're miserable. Some of you are Jays fans, you know, whatever. And you're like, oh, it's happy. Next day, you lose, and you're, and, and you're miserable. Um, on social media, we, um, we post something, and we get more likes than we thought, and we're happy sad. And then we post something else and we don't get the likes we want and then we're down and miserable because no one's paying attention to us. It's like, oh Lord, help us to learn. Help us to learn, right? It's so pathetic. At school, we got a mark we like, we're happy. We got a mark we don't like, we're miserable. That, that's how the world works. It's, it's pathetic. 
when Jesus speaks of a blessing and a happiness, it is so far removed from a school mark we want or a school mark that we don't want as well. And I want you to understand the word blessing. And I take a few moments here because this is theologically so rich and so important. Look at a couple of verses on the screen here with the same word as blessed in Matthew 5. So 1 Timothy 1, 11 on the screen, if you look at here, it says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory, look at how God describes himself as the blessed God, written by the Holy Spirit, right? Paul writing this, with which I have been entrusted. God himself is called blessed. God himself, listen, is blessing. See, When God holds a blessing, he holds a blessing that is unalterable and untouchable by any circumstance around him. God's blessing and happiness does not rise and fall with whether people like him or not. You know what I'm saying? Like, it never changes. He has perfect, unchangeable, unalterable blessing in his very character. Here's the amazing part. And God wants to share his blessing increasingly with his children. When Jesus says blessed are, this, this is the depth of blessing that he is talking about. If we look also on the screen of Titus 2, verse 13, notice it says here, same word in Matthew 5, right? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm waiting for our blessed hope. So just like, I mean, one of the books I read this summer and reading right now into through the summer is Come Lord Jesus by John Piper on the Return of Christ. And unpacking verses like this. Now, now, the moment Jesus Christ returns, do you think about this? I think about this a lot, okay? We are supposed to. We are to love and long for the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. The appearing of our blessed hope. Man, just imagine there you are doing your thing at work, at home, whatever it is, doing something mundane. The trumpet sounds, however it's going to go. And Jesus comes riding on the clouds and there he is. And you, and you see him. And in that moment, the eternal, uh, everlasting perfection of blessing that begins to fill and flood your soul that will never, ever leave you ever. The appearing of our blessed hope, the full contentedness, happiness, eternal, extreme, unfathomable joy that is coming for all those who long and love the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ in that moment, all of life, all of eternity, everything we've ever hoped for, satisfied at the appearing of Jesus Christ, all sin dealt with, and everything made perfect. And again, that is the blessing that Jesus Christ has in store for us. Listen then, that is the blessing that Jesus increasingly wants to see within us now already and then in hope of the not yet that is to come the rewards of the fullness of the kingdom that's a pretty powerful blessing and listen listen jesus is inviting us and he delights in us and he wants us to grow in the depth of this blessing the beatitudes church leads to that type of blessing Consider the depth of that. Consider the unalterable joy of this blessing. This blessing, blessed are, is a transcendent reality. Nothing can touch it. Nothing can get in the way of it. It transcends our world. That kind of joy and happiness is offered from Jesus. Let me uh, try and getting that from another episode on Disney+. Plus, Right? It's not going to happen, man. Or any other thing. But, but this is what we do, though. We're so foolish at times. That we go to the next segment hoping that it's going to satisfy us with some kind of, it never ever works. Jesus is like, give me a break. Disney Plus 
versus, you know, my eternal, unalterable blessing. This is what Jesus is offering today. And so faith hopefully starts to rise a little bit to say, man, this is where we're headed. And this is what Jesus wants to give. The, the other insight I want us to gain, too, as we get started in the sermon is, is, is the context, okay? I love saying this, i said this many times before, too. So Sermon on the Mount, greatest sermon ever given. Jesus Christ, greatest person who ever lived. Son of God himself, right? Notice how he starts this sermon. You ever thought about this, right? All the commands that are to come in chapter 5, 6, and 7. How does he start the greatest sermon ever by the very greatest person, Jesus Christ, Son of God? He begins with the Beatitudes. Why? It's character. He lays a foundation of character. There's no chance the rest of the commands will be lived out unless the character and the foundation is there in the first place. On the screen for you, right, to make note of this. Why? Because character precedes conduct all the time. Or you can say conduct flows from character. The Beatitudes before the behavior that comes in the other chapters. The Beatitudes guarantee blessing. When someone is living out, the instructions are living out the hardened character of the statements of blessing, 100% guaranteed that you will begin in increasing measure to experience the blessing of God himself, the inner contentedness of joy and fulfillment and bliss and happiness Again, and blessing that only Jesus Christ can give. So that's kind of our intro today. Now, I just want to encourage you that um, that's about halfway through the sermon right now, okay? So just be at ease. Don't worry about it. We're going to end on time, I hope, as we normally would. But I wanted to take some time to build that foundation as now we begin to get into the kind of official text of our sermon, which we are entitling this to the secret to true blessing. What follows now from Jesus is the secret to true blessings. So let's begin now in the first beatitude. Our point number one is this. Um, the secret to true blessing means I believe that poverty leads to riches. I believe that poverty, that spiritual poverty, leads to spiritual riches. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. It says, Jesus says, Blessed, now that word has a lot more kind of meaning for us right now. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Notice the reward, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, why does Jesus begin here? Many, many, many commentators agree here, too, that the Beatitudes are in chronological order. Meaning, if you miss this first Beatitude, you're not going to see the other Beatitudes, because this Beatitude, verse 3, is the foundation for all the other Beatitudes. That's how important poor in spirit is, as the foundation to see this character kind of flow through our lives. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Jesus is not talking about being physically poor here, although many times the physically poor are spiritually poor and therefore know they need Jesus Christ. One of the greatest curses in our world is to be physically rich because then you think you're self-sufficient, you don't need God, you reject God, and you have no need for the Savior Jesus Christ. Not all the time, not all the time. But we're made very clear that is very hard for often the rich to be saved because of the arrogance and the pride that comes with it. We always have to watch for that in our Western world. The poor in spirit here is the person who knows that on their own, listen, on their own, they are spiritually bankrupt. To be poor in spirit, you understand you are destitute on your own. 
The person who is poor in spirit spiritually knows that apart from Christ, they can do nothing. Another way to say it is they, they know they are a spiritual pauper. They have nothing to bring, to offer to God other than a heart and a life filled with sin that is the opposite, again, of perfection. The poor in spirit is the person who stands before God, not inflated with pride, but rather devastated in the reality of their sinfulness. It's the person who is desperate for God. Why? Because they see the futility of self. It's the person who understands this. I must be emptied of self before I can be filled with Christ. That's a huge theological principle, again, all through Scripture, New Testament, here in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. I must come to the end of myself and be emptied of self to recognize I need the filling and the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, poverty of spirit leads to eternal spiritual riches in Jesus Christ. It's hard for us based on Scripture to overstate the importance of this truth. Right? God, God, God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the poor in this case, to the poor in spirit, to the, to the humble. Notice too, look at, look, at, look at verse 3. Notice, who is the kingdom of heaven given to? The kingdom of heaven is only given to those who are poor in spirit. So in order to be granted eternal life, we must come to the end of ourselves. Listen carefully, all those of you here right now, I don't know who else here the Lord does. There are no exceptions to this. In order to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven, it necessitates we come to the end of ourselves and we see our sin, we repent, and therefore cry out for the healing, the love, the grace that is only found in Jesus Christ. Notice this too, right, right from the start. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is devastating to a works-based salvation, which is false teaching. Lots of it out there, though. If you do ABC, then God will be pleased with you, and you'll get into heaven. Not in the Bible. No one is ever able to do anything good enough to become perfect and gain entrance into heaven on their own. There's no amount of work that can be done. Jesus is like, I don't want your work. I want a devastation of soul. I want a spiritual bankruptcy in our reality that cries out for his sufficiency, his light, his glory to flood our lives. That's when salvation comes to the house. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think of, again, this theme in Scripture, like how many biblical characters that were truly filled with Jesus Christ and saved, again, all through Old Testament, New Testament, they all had to come to this place. I think of Abraham. I think of Moses. I think of David. I think of Hezekiah. I think of, again, the sinful woman in Luke 7. I think just random people. I think of Zacchaeus. I think of the thief on the cross in the last moments of his life. Totally. I think of Peter in his denial, devastated in his brokenness and becomes the greatest leader of the church at that time. I think of the apostle Paul in his pride and spiritual arrogance, rode to Damascus, light shone from heaven, devastated in self, sees Jesus Christ, never the same again. Every person ever used, ever saved, must encounter the Lord in some form to be poor in spirit, and then theirs is the kingdom of heaven, because we have nothing to bring in and of ourselves. One of my favorite hymns is Rock of Ages, and one of the verses in this hymn says this, it's beautiful, nothing in my hands I bring. Like, I got nothing. It's not like, yeah, hey, I'll bring my 5%. No, I got nothing. 
simply to the cross. Like, all I can do is cling to the cross of Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Naked come. Like, that's, that's really well written. Like, if, 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 if clothing were, in a, you know, a, a symbol of our, you know, what we bring in our salvation, we would come naked. There's nothing we have. We're helpless. Helpless. We look or fly to thee for grace. He's the only one who can give it. Foul. I thought this foul. Uh, filthy. Sinful. To the fountain of living water. To be washed. Why? I, I can't do anything. I come by faith. And only Jesus Christ and his grace can wash me. Wash me, Savior, otherwise I die. It's beautiful. Really, really, really good theology here. Wash me, Savior, or I'm dead, or I die. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be spiritually bankrupt. Now, isn't that the exact opposite of what our world is teaching us at an all-time high every day that we live one of the other books I was reading this summer is a book by, um, you can put, it, put the cover on the screen there, so by Alyssa Childers, and um, it's called Live Your Truth and Other Lies, and Other Lies, Exposing Popular Deceptions That Make Us Anxious, Exhausted, and Self-Obsessed. I've read enough of this book to be able to recommend it to you, but she breaks down some of the key lies that we're receiving in our world today. It's great for young people. It's great for all of us as well, though. One of the lies she breaks down in one of the chapters is the lie, have you heard this a lot? The lie that says, you are enough. You are enough. You hear that? That's, that's said a lot. You are enough. Now, what is that? That is steeped in misleading and disastrous false teaching founded in the self-esteem movement. Just look within. You are enough. Now, you open the Bible and you understand the reality of the human heart and just like, I am enough? Are you kidding me? If I was enough, then I wouldn't need Jesus. If I was enough, I wouldn't need anything. Trust me, I am not enough. Are you enough? Man, I am not enough. I hate, like I resonate when Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I resonate with that on a daily basis. I am not enough. The whole point of the gospel is you're not enough. Our world is couching all these lies. All our young people are being fed lie after lie after lie of like, you're enough. Believe in yourself. I don't want to believe in myself. Myself stinks. No, no, no. This is not, this is not happening. Live your truth. What does it even mean, live your truth? So anyone can have their truth, whatever. You can do it. No, I can't. I can't do it. Have you ever, ever, ever figured out you can't do it yet? I cannot do it. I am absolutely useless and helpless. Every day I fail. Every day I sin. Every day I bring misery upon myself. I am desperately in need of the grace and healing and forgiveness and power of Jesus Christ and his spirit in my life every single day. Driving to church this morning, desperately in need of Christ for another year of ministry. I can't do it. The gospel says you can't do it, but someone has done it. His name is Jesus Christ. And what's so interesting right now, clap for that man. Good night, clap. What's so interesting right now, all these lies our young people are receiving through our culture, it makes me angry. And what's, what's the result? Higher rates of depression than ever before in this nation. Higher rates of suicide among young people than ever before within this nation. Because they are being 
fed these lies that sound good on the outside. You're enough. Live your truth. Believe in yourself. You know, it sounds good on one side. Yeah, yeah. But then the, 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 the prince of the power of the air, Satan in his realm, is orchestrating these things because he knows in the end every young person or person who goes down this path will never, ever find fulfillment. They will always, in the end, if they don't turn back, will find misery. And in that misery, they'll be like, this is it. This is my life, nothing to live for, no hope, no point, no joy, no purpose, no fulfillment. Why should I bother? And that's, that's the reality of society we're living in right now. Jesus comes on the scene, and maybe one of the last things you'd expect, the first thing he says in his greatest sermon ever given before the foundation of the world, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Like almost mic drop at that point right there. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Eternally blessed and fulfilled are those young people and all people who know they're spiritually bankrupt and desperately run to the healing grace found only in Jesus Christ. Then the blessing starts to flow. Listen, not the ease, not the comfort, not the life free from trial. No, quite the opposite. Narrow road, hard road, unpopular road, the blessed road. This is what Jesus Christ promises to give. The poor in spirit, the poor in spirit are those who cry out independence. The poor in spirit are those who marvel at the mercy of God. The poor in spirit are those who look at the cross and just say, why me? How could I possibly be saved in all my sin? The poor in spirit are those who just will never boast in possessions or house or bank accounts. No, because it means nothing. The poor in spirit are those who sing at the top of their lungs and boast in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ who has granted them access to the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, man, they're... They're just forever changed. And I think, again, so many verses in Scripture I could come up with right now, but let's just take a couple. So when Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, this is the problem with our world right now. This is the problem with some are here right now too. Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, he says, for you say, I am rich. For you say that I am prosperous. For you say, I need nothing. That's our world right now. And we're in danger living in such a way. We say, I am rich, I am prosperous, I need nothing. Jesus says, in reality, not my words, Jesus' words. He says, in reality, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, that's the difference. This morning in my Bible readings, Psalm 52 to 54, I mean, I cannot believe, the Bible's just saying, listen, listen. God laughs at the rich. He laughs at them. Like, their time is now, but their judgment is coming. Like, they will end up with nothing. They will be experiencing the wrath of God. I, I, it's incredible to me how often Scripture is telling us the poor in spirit are those who are eternally blessed, and all those who live for self and world and riches and houses, whatever it is, again, they are subject to eternal wrath and judgment and separation from God. That's why when you kind of contrast Revelation 3 in that statement to the Laodiceans, and then God says in Isaiah 66, verse 2, but this is the one to whom I will look. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. 
That's the man I look at. That's the woman. That's the child I look at. Those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So let me ask you today, right now, if the poor, if, if this attitude of being poor in spirit was growing in your life, what would, what would change in your life right now? What would it look like for, to be poor in spirit, grow in your life right now? If, if, if we were poor in spirit, what, what, what gratitude would replace complaining? For those who are poor in spirit, they, 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 they stay more of the cross and they just, they cannot fathom that a sinner like them has been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as opposed to complaining while they don't have a different version of a car in their driveway or how come something hasn't worked out to their favor that they want in this temporary world. And it's not important. The complaining's in the trash and the gratitude comes to the forefront. Poor in spirit. You've been given eternal riches in Jesus Christ. How can you complain about something else that isn't? Makes no sense. The theology starts to flood their lives. What joy would replace apathy? Sit around again doing nothing and just kind of wasting your time. The joy that comes in for Jesus Christ because you've been granted access to God's kingdom and you want to be used in that sense to serve him and all that he's entrusted you with because eternity is coming fast. It's just it's amazing, poor in spirit, man. And that humility that comes in and the fruit that grows from that too. How would the volume of our voices and song grow if we were living as people who are poor in spirit? When the gospel verses come up and we're like, whoa, that's me. And then all of a sudden the exclamation, declaration of praise comes from our lives here and in the car and maybe in the shower, wherever it is. You're singing to the Lord Jesus Christ because you cannot believe what he's done for you. Hey, man, I want to ask you this. If, if you and I were growing as being men who are poor in spirit genuinely, how would your marriage and family change? When you, if you walked into your house this week, truly poor in spirit, what, what do you imagine would change as you walk into your home and you're genuinely poor in spirit? How would your words change? How would your perspective change? How would your actions change? What do you think you'd say and not say and do and not do? How do you think you would lead if you were poor in spirit and the Holy Spirit's working through your life and a love for Jesus Christ is increasing on a daily basis? Women, if you were growing and being poor in spirit in this attitude, how would your countenance change? How would your speech change? How would your desires change? What would you no longer desire? What would you no longer say? How would you present yourself? What things would go? What things would be reinforced? If we were truly poor in spirit, how would we look so different? People around us would notice instantly. How would our lives change if we stopped exalting self and started increasing the exalting Christ? That's what the poor in spirit do. It's immensely powerful. And what Jesus is promising here is, listen, blessed are the poor in spirit. See, that's what we often get so wrong, right? We think what? We think this. More of us equals more blessing. That's false teaching. But we do, our world, our world, right? Everything we talk about today. More of us means more happiness. And Jesus is like, well, it's actually the exact opposite. Less of us, more of Christ means true increased blessing upon our lives. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I just don't want to miss this moment too, like, are you here today and maybe you've never truly been poor in spirit? 
before. Like maybe you've been to church for a while, maybe new to church, maybe playing church, maybe there's some external behaviors, but there's been no internal change. There's been no brokenness over sin truly ever. It took me 22 years. I could tell you a lot of Bible passages. I could tell you a lot of Bible stories. I could tell you a lot of serving I did in different capacities growing up in the church. We even sang in the youth choir. That was painful. But I can tell you that I didn't know Christ because I wasn't poor in spirit. But the day that Jesus, by his grace, let me see my spiritual bankruptcy of heart and soul, uh, I would never be the same again. So encouraging. Literally this morning, woke up to a text from a young man in our church. He's kind of on a really neat missions opportunity. He's been there just a little bit. He texted me, Pastor Rob, I want you to know that um, I was genuinely saved this week because he was genuinely broken in the Lord. That's awesome. And by the way, his text sounded like, I mean, he's a, he's, he's a good kid. I like him a lot, but it doesn't surprise me. There's a lot of young people walking around. They have some knowledge, but the reality of brokenness here and the life change that takes place and the fruit is undeniable. That was this morning I got that text. Praise the Lord. More, Lord, more. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're like me, you're kind of going through this, you're like, wow, I'm pretty convicted. What do I do? What do I do? Let's keep it simple today, okay? Here's the quote that I kind of found the first year of being a Christian that I've never, ever forgotten. Let's put that up on the screen for us here, okay? F.B. Meyer. Look at this. Love this so much. So simple, so powerful. The only hope for a decreasing self is an increasing Christ. Now, I love the simplicity of that. How do I become less? How do I become less? Well, instead of worrying about becoming less, how about first worry about increasing Christ? Because when Christ increases, we automatically decrease. Listen, the answer to everything in our lives, if you want true blessing, is more Jesus. It's Jesus Christ increasing. If you get Jesus to increase in your life on a daily basis, the absolute guarantee is more blessing. More Jesus equals more blessing. More of us equals more misery. More of Christ equals more joy. More Jesus equals more happiness. More Jesus equals more contentedness. More Jesus equals more fulfillment. More Jesus equals more blessing. Get Jesus Christ to increase and then automatically guaranteed. Again, again, not ease, not comfort, not a life free from trials, but a guarantee of his blessing flooding down into your mind, heart, and soul, and then running out through your life. 100% guaranteed when Jesus Christ truly increases in our lives. Talking to a good friend this week, and, and uh, this summer he was at a cottage with his extended family, whatever, and he's a great man, love him so much, and um, he was just, families were all over there, and he was just in the corner on a table, just reading his Bible. Reading his Bible, everyone's doing their stuff, whatever. His daughter-in-law came up to him, and uh, who's unsaved, actually, at this point. God's doing great work, though, it sounds like. And she just asked him, I don't know her. She's like, hey, why do you read your Bible so much? And she wanted to know. Great question. So he's a very wise man. He said, he said a really good answer. He's like, well, in one sense, I read my Bible. And it's so neat someone to ask that genuinely. Well, I read my Bible because it's wisdom. I read my Bible because I see guidance, you know, from the Lord in my life and learning about who he is. But ultimately, he said wisely. He said, the single greatest reason I, f I read my Bible because that's where I find Jesus. And when you find Jesus is when you find blessing. And that is the blessing that the world can't touch and that Satan is so terrified of.
the only hope for a decreasing self is in increasing Jesus Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's going to be a good year, amen, church? It's going to be a good year. Let's pray together. Let's pray together right now. Wow, Lord, big stuff right off the bat. First verse of your world-changing sermon. It's beautiful. It's heavy. It's amazing. It's encouraging. It's convicting. But it's good. It's real. And so I beg you for this church. I beg you for these wonderful men and women and children here at Hope Bible Church. Man, if, um, if we would see poor in spirit growing in increasing measure in our lives and our families and community, wow, 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 wow. It's a blessing. That means, again, let's not shy away, Lord. You promise blessing, like unalterable blessing. So forgive us when we have it so backwards, when we follow the world and it's, inability to fulfill on any level but here today we see no there's an upside down kingdom and in this starts off with recognize you're spiritually bankrupt that you desperately need jesus christ and then the joy that actually comes from that attitude oh lord help us help us even the song we sing so beautiful lead us now in our lives in our homes in our groups more of you and less of us may it be an awesome year for you we pray in jesus name Amen.